Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to Galatians, book of Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. As the gospel of Jesus Christ was spreading throughout the Roman Empire in the mid-first century, it began to become increasingly clear that Christianity was not going to be merely another Jewish sect. Instead, this was becoming a global, multi-ethnic, multicultural, spectacularly diverse religion. Sure, the church started out Jewish. Indeed, the church was founded by a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth who happened also to be God, the God of the universe. And through his death and resurrection, he paid for and secured the salvation of all who would trust in him. And this resurrected Jewish carpenter turns to his fearful small band of Jewish followers and tells them to take this good news into the world. You'll start here in Jerusalem, but eventually this message will spread to the ends of the earth. And in the process of global gospel expansion, the message spreads into the Gentile region of Galatia through the Apostle Paul, and many people believe, and many churches are established. But in the wake of that, a cult from Jerusalem emerges, known as the Judaizers, and they preach another gospel to the Gentiles that says, you aren't saved by faith in Christ alone, you also must become a Jew, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the Jewish dietary laws. You've got to observe certain Jewish holy days. They take a gospel that's meant to be multicultural and multiracial, and irony of ironies, they pervert that, and they say to actually be a real Christian, you've got to become just like us. But these Judaizers who attempted to drive a wedge between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles suffered a serious setback as we saw last week when we looked at verses 1 through 10, where Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the Jerusalem church, they stand in unity with Paul. They endorse his apostleship. They clarify that Paul's gospel is exactly the same as what the Jerusalem church preaches and that a Gentile does not have to be circumcised to be saved and regarded as part of God's people. But the battle is not over. The defense of the gospel is never a one-and-done thing. The gospel is always under attack. And if we are not vigilant, we may find that the most significant undermining of the gospel comes not from nefarious, mustache-twirling villains outside the church, but from ourselves. So why don't you stand with me now? As we read together the Word of God, we stand in recognition and honor that this is the Word of the living God. And let's see what happens next in our text. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. We'll read on down through verse 14. When you see the name Cephas, by the way, in this text, that refers to Peter, the Apostle Peter. And this is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, "...but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned." For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, 
If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this is your precious, holy, and inspired word, and I pray that that word would do its work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Do as I say, don't do as I... You know it. You've heard it before. I remember as a child hearing that expression from grown-ups in authority, and it always puzzled me. Even as a little child, that kind of argument rang hollow with me. It just didn't make any sense. If you tell me to be a truth teller, and then you call into work and say you're sick when you're really not, or if you tell me to be polite, and then you turn around and you cuss out the person you cut off in traffic, it can, at best, cause me to be a little bit confused. But at worst, it undermines the credibility of whatever you're saying, and instead of me doing what you say, I end up just doing what you do. I just follow your example. We've got a situation here in Galatians chapter 2 that gives us a powerful example, negatively, of how sometimes what we do speaks a louder and more persuasive word than what we say. But God takes this situation and he uses it as an opportunity to help us discover and clarify the authentic gospel. And the first thing that we see in our text today is an explosive church controversy. The scene of this confrontation that we just read about is in the church in Antioch. Now, if Jerusalem was the center of Jewish Christianity, Antioch was the hub of Gentile Christianity. It was located in southern Turkey. It was uh, one of the most important cities of the Roman Empire, the third largest city in the empire, population of about a half a million people. It stood at the crossroads between the east and the west and became a melting pot for all kinds of ethnic groups and cultures. And so when the gospel comes to Antioch, the church naturally becomes a mix of people. And you've got Jews in there, but you've got a lot of Gentiles as well. And Antioch becomes an evangelism powerhouse and a base of operations for Paul and Barnabas's mission into the Gentile world. Now, after the gospel unity that was expressed between Paul, Barnabas, and the pillar apostles at their Jerusalem meeting in verses 1 through 10, it is very shocking, after reading that, to read verse 11. Look with me, verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. That's stunning. We read last week how Paul came to Jerusalem and Peter gives him the right hand of fellowship. Peter comes to Antioch and Paul gets in his face. Paul says, I opposed Peter to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. That doesn't mean condemned to hell. He's not questioning Peter's salvation. But Peter's condemned in the sense that he was clearly wrong about something. And what is he wrong about? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. And Paul sees this going on, and he is stirred up with a righteous anger, and he gets in Peter's face and rebukes him. So what started out as a church gathering has deteriorated into a food fight. Now why? Why the controversy? 
What's the, what's the big deal here? Why was Paul so furious over this? Why does Peter care who sees him and who doesn't see him? And why does this all matter? I mean, it's just food, isn't it? Well, yes and no. To the Jewish person, food wasn't just food. It was an identity marker. As circumcision was a Jewish identity marker, and we dealt with that last week, so were the Jewish dietary laws. If you read Leviticus, and I know you do all the time in your devotions, in Leviticus chapter 11, you find it, you should read it, it's a good book. You find an entire chapter there devoted to food, and God divides the animals into clean and unclean animals, foods the Jews could eat and foods they couldn't. So you could eat beef, but you can't eat pork. You can eat lamb, but you can't eat shellfish. Certain types of bugs you could eat, like locusts, and other types you could not. And for a Jew to eat a prohibited food would render him ceremonially unclean. He would be considered defiled. Now, Leviticus is big on this concept of clean and unclean. And the idea is that being unclean is a barrier between you and God. And so you'll find throughout the Old Testament law ways that one might be made clean again after being defiled, whether that's through washing or, or waiting a period of time or some other means. And all of this is illustrative of the fact that God being clean, being holy, cannot have anything unclean or defiled in his presence. And to be in right relationship with God, one must be made clean. These and other Old Testament laws were designed to make Israel very distinct and very peculiar on purpose. They were to live in such a peculiar way that the nations would take notice and come and see. And through that, the nations would learn about the Lord. And sometimes outsiders would join with Israel. And when they did, they would adopt identity markers, such as circumcision and the food laws, as they identified with Israel and her God. What's more, while Israel on the one hand was to be a light to the nations, on the other hand, she was also to avoid intimate entanglements with the pagan nations because God knew that Israel was prone to idolatry. And what they needed was a degree of separation from the nations to maintain her distinctiveness. And therefore, the food laws served as a kind of protective barrier because nothing brings people together like food. We're Baptist and we understand that. We do that once a month. We have our fellowship meal. Maybe we should do it more than once. A meal is a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of oneness, of being knit together by bonds bigger than themselves. But food is also divisive. It's hard to really bond with others if you can't even share meals together. And the food laws provided a degree of separation between Jew and Gentile. But sadly... Those laws became a basis for a kind of racial superiority where many Jews began to look down on Gentiles, on non-Jews, with a smug kind of arrogance. It wasn't just those foul, unclean pigs and shellfish that I despise, but it's those filthy, uncircumcised, swine-eating Gentiles also. And from that sprang up all kinds of man-made regulations and traditions. Jews regularly practiced ceremonial hand-washing out of concern that their hands may have unwittingly touched a Gentile or something belonging to a Gentile. Anything a Gentile touched 
was to be regarded as unclean. What's more, a Jew wouldn't even eat their own kosher foods at the same table as a Gentile, lest there be some cross-contamination and a Jew might accidentally become unclean. And so many Jews would restrict their associations with Gentiles as much as humanly possible. So now, fast forward now to the first century church, and you can see the problem. One of the biggest challenges of the early church was that Christianity was growing beyond its Jewish roots, and now Gentiles were coming in also. And for many Jewish believers, the question was, what do we do about this? You know, 2,000 years later, in our Gentile Western culture, we don't appreciate the, the struggle here that many of them would have faced. What do we do about this? How do we handle this in light of our heritage, in light of the things that God told us to do in the Torah? This has been our way of life for over a thousand years. And we know that the Judaizers have a solution. We've been talking about that for weeks, right? The Judaizers are like, well, it's easy to solve this problem. They just need to become uh, like us. The Gentiles need to do what we do. They need to live how we live. They need to eat how we eat. If they do that, they're in. If they don't, they're out. And in the first part of Galatians 2, as we saw last week, we saw that Paul, Barnabas, and the Jerusalem apostles rejected that solution in favor of the authentic gospel. But affirming something with your mouth is one thing. Actually living it out is something altogether different. And so we move from an explosive church controversy to a leader's compromising cowardice. Back to verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Peter evidently arrived in Antioch from Jerusalem for an extended visit, maybe to encourage them, check up on them, get to know them. And while he was there, he was regularly enjoying table fellowship with the Gentiles. That was part of his custom, his practice. That changed when certain men from James came. Men from the Jerusalem church where James was the pastor. These guys show up and suddenly Peter's behavior dramatically changes. Again, verse 12, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, Acts chapter 15 appears to reference some situations connected to what we're seeing here in Galatians chapter 2. For example, Acts 15 verses 1 and 2 says that some false teachers came down to Antioch from Jerusalem and had a run-in with Paul and Barnabas, and these men were pushing salvation through circumcision. And a little later on in the same chapter, James writes an official letter that is to be delivered to the church at Antioch. And he writes in Acts 15, 24 this. We have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. In other words, James is washing his hands of these people. He's saying that we've gotten wind of some renegade teachers from our church and they're causing trouble in Antioch. And I want you to know, Antioch, they do not represent us. I do not endorse them. I do not agree with them. I did not send them to you. So if they, if they claim to be authorized by me, they're lying. And so I think, going back to Galatians 2, these men who show up in Antioch and who throw a wet blanket on the 
Jewish-Gentile fellowship there are the same rogues that James, James is distancing himself from in Acts 15. The text says that when these men arrive in Antioch, Peter drew back and separated himself. Now in the Greek, that phrase, uh, that phrase suggests a gradual, even a sneaky kind of withdrawal. Kind of bit by bit shrinking back. On the one hand, he doesn't want the men from James to see his table fellowship with the Gentiles... But on the other hand, it's like he doesn't want his withdrawal to be obvious to the Gentiles. He's kind of in a tricky situation. Often you are when you're trying to be deceptive. That's what you get for trying to be deceptive. Now why? Why, why is he doing this? Is Peter confused all of a sudden about the gospel? No. But, but in verse 12, he has a moment of weakness. It says he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Peter was not confused. He was afraid. And the fear of man led him to compromise with, with his life, what he said he believed, with his lips. Maybe he was afraid of his reputation back in Jerusalem where a lot of the hardliners were. Uh, afraid of what other people would think when the word got out that he was sitting around elbow to elbow eating with Gentiles. Maybe he was just sick and tired of the Judaizers and just didn't want the hassle of dealing with them in the moment. This is going to be just a really bad day, a really bad week if I stick around with the Gentiles right now. So I'm out of here. But regardless of what's going on, he's driven by fear, and that fear drives him to protect himself. And, and how does he protect himself? By throwing his Gentile brothers under the bus. Because you never sin in a vacuum. Sometimes people try to justify their sin by saying, you know, it's not going to affect anybody else. If I'm hurting anyone, it's just me. It's my business. It's no one else's. Peter, in that moment, wasn't thinking of the ripple effects of his sin. Peter was just thinking about Peter. That's how sin works. What's the payoff for me? What's the kickback for me? But whenever you sin, it's like setting off a grenade. And those closest to you will get caught in the shrapnel of your sin one way or another. And it will affect others. It will hurt others. Like surely it hurt these Gentile believers who are sitting, there, sitting around now wondering, what happened? Why did Peter abandon us? Why is he shunning us now? And our sin can also hurt others in that we can pull them into our sin with us. And so you see in verse 13, that's exactly what happens. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. The Gentile Christians are left scratching their heads, wondering what in the world is going on. The Jewish Christians see their man, Peter, drawing back from the Gentiles, and they're thinking, that's Peter. That's our leader. That's the chief of the apostles. I don't want to go up against him. If he's rejecting the Gentiles right now, he must have a good reason for it, so I'm just going to do what he does. Peter has affirmed the truth of the gospel with his lips. But these Jewish believers don't do as Peter says, they do as Peter does. That should be a sobering warning for anyone who is in a position of influence, which is pretty much everybody in this room. Whether you're a leader in the church, or if you're a parent, or if you're a husband, or if you're an employer, or if you have friends who are in any way influenced by you, you can say you're a Christian, you can talk about the Bible, you can tell people how to live, but know that people are not just listening to what you say, they are watching what you do. And the people in the Antioch church were watching Peter. 
And the Jews followed his lead. And much to Paul's dismay, look what he writes next. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, Paul's great missionary companion to the Gentiles. This was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. Even Barnabas was led astray. How great the pressure to compromise must have been in that moment. And Paul calls this hypocrisy. We get the word hypocrisy from the Greek word hypokrites. That word was associated with the ancient Greek theater. And the term was used in reference to a stage actor who would be speaking from under a mask. And the mask concealed the person's real identity. That's what Paul thinks of Peter in this moment. He's a hypocrite. He's playing a role. His real identity is a Christian who has believed the gospel, but in a moment of weakness, he does not live according to what he believes. You could say in that moment, there actually was a competing belief. Yes, Peter believed the gospel, but in that moment, he was believing another message more. He was believing a lie. A lie that said that he needed the affirmation of others. He needed to please a powerful group of people. He needed to protect himself in that moment. And the approval of these people would give him what he needed more than living according to the gospel would give him what he needed. That's what Peter did. That's what we all do when we sin. Christian brother and sister, when you sin, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. It means you're a hypocrite. It means you're, you're playing another role. It means that in that moment, you're not living in accordance to who you really are as a believer. And you have, even if just for a moment, chosen to believe a lie. Whether that's the lie of what you really need in this moment is the approval of man. A lot of us struggle with that one. Or what you really need in that moment is to look at pornography or what you really need in that moment is to lash out in sinful anger at your spouse or your child. Or what you really need is to sinfully neglect your family for a little more money because that's where your ultimate security lies. Or, or what you really need is to refuse reconciliation with another because you think you can distribute the justice of God better than God. Anytime you sin... You exchange the truth of God for a lie, and Paul in Romans 1 says that that is the essence of idolatry. Peter was a hypocrite who exchanged the truth of the gospel for the lie of self-protection. Peter knew the truth. He knew the truth. It was Peter who had that great vision of clean and unclean animals described in Acts chapter 10 and 11 that, that Steve, Pastor Steve read a little earlier. And Jesus tells Peter in that vision to, to eat. Peter recoils from that because he's never eaten unclean foods before. Remember what Jesus said? He said to Peter, listen Peter, what God has made clean, don't call common. And Jesus shows Peter this vision not just to give Peter permission to have pepperoni on his pizza. There's more going on here. There's something uh, going on that is deeper than food, and Peter realizes that. 
Because God sends Peter on an evangelistic visit to a man named Cornelius. Oh, and guess what? Cornelius is a Gentile. And Peter does something scandalous. He actually enters into the house of this man and sits down and eats with him. And Peter says to him in Acts 10.28, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see, the, the vision wasn't just about food. It was really about people. And that God was beginning, to, beginning a great work of salvation amongst the Gentile peoples. And you might say, well, after all of that, I can't believe that Peter did what he did in Galatians chapter 2. Why not? You find it hard to believe that Peter vacillates back and forth? You find it hard to believe that Peter is a bit unstable? You don't know Peter very well, do you? This is the same Peter who at Caesarea Philippi boldly declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Jesus commends that declaration. But then a few minutes later, Peter is rebuking Jesus Christ for talking about going to the cross. And Jesus calls Peter Satan. This is the same Peter who says to Christ, Lord, let me come out, on, come out of the boat and walk on the waves with you. And Jesus bids him come, and Peter steps out on the boat, a great act of faith. And he walks on the water for a moment. And then he sees the waves and the wind, and he begins to sink. His faith goes out the window. This is the same Peter who on the night Jesus was betrayed said, I will never betray you, Jesus. Even if they all fall away, I won't. And he draws a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, ready to take on Roman soldiers to prevent Jesus' arrest. And just hours later, when Jesus is on trial, Peter is confronted by a little servant girl who says, Are you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter, in fear, says, Nope, I'm not with him. That's Peter. That's you. That's me. You see, Peter was a great man, but the best of men are men at best, and we can identify with him, can't we? We have moments of great faith only to turn around and blow it. Folks, that's the Christian life. From the moment you're born again to the moment you die, it's a life of intense spiritual warfare. Welcome to Christianity. Now, Scripture teaches, for our encouragement, that there is growth for the believer, there is a general upward trajectory towards holiness. But our holiness, our sanctification, is not so much a straight line upward. A lot, a lot of people see sanctification as that. You get saved and then boom, you just, you, just, you, you just climb in the altitude all the way. Some people see sanctification that way. Other people see sanctification like a, like a roller coaster that really in the end never gets anywhere. You just kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of doing that. And really... There's, there's no progress. Actually, a better illustration for sanctification is a jagged, crooked line. Like when you're climbing a mountain. If you climb a mountain upward to get to the peak, sometimes you end up going down. And then you go up some. 
and then you might go down a little, but the overall trajectory is always up, like this, upward and upward, a jagged line. And if you follow Peter's story, he's moving in an upward direction, but it is that jagged line. There's two steps forward, there's a step back, three steps forward, a couple back, but always overall, in the end, moving forward. And Galatians 2 is one of his down moments. But let's not be too harsh on Peter, because we can relate to that. His story is our story. But nevertheless, it is right when we are corrected for our sin, and so Paul won't let this slide. He won't let it slide for Peter's sake, and especially for the sake of everybody who is watching this. And so that leads us to an apostle's courageous conviction. You know, some, some people are like, well, why didn't, why didn't Paul just do this in, in private? <laughs> why do you have to get in Peter's face in front of everybody else? It's because Peter's sin was public. He was a leader, and this public sin was affecting other people, so it had to be dress, addressed publicly. Paul opposes Peter to his face, and look how he describes the actions of Peter and those who followed him in verse 14. He says, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, Paul uses in that, in, in that uh, phrase there the Greek word orthopedousin. Orthopedousin. We, we get our word orthopedics from that word. Or when, you, when your teeth are crooked, where do you go? You go to the orthodontist who helps get your teeth in a straight line. Paul's basically saying that their conduct is not in step or in line with the truth of the gospel. Paul sees the gospel as a straight line, and Peter's behavior has deviated from that straight line. How so? Well, for starters, Peter's withdrawal from the Gentile Christians is unintentionally communicating something about their spiritual status. There's an interesting passage in Mark chapter 7. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read some excerpts in a moment. But it's in Mark chapter 7. And the Jewish leaders were giving Jesus and the disciples a very hard time, like they always do. In this situation, it was about washing and cleaning rituals. They weren't doing those things that most pious Jews would be doing. And in Mark 7 verse 5, uh, the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? No, no they don't say the, the Torah. Uh, it's a tradition of the elders. These are man-made rules and laws that have been tacked on to God's word. And look at Jesus' response in verse 6. Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, the, the way of the Pharisees was a way of external religion. They were so concerned about their little rules and being externally and ceremonially pure, claiming it was all for God and their devotion to Him. And what does Jesus call them? Hypocrites. There's that word again. What a coincidence. Uh, they are hypocrites because what they are doing on the outside is masking who they really are. And who they really are are a people with hearts that are far from God. And then in verse 18, if you skip down, Jesus says to them, Do you not see 
that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declares all foods clean. That's a parenthetical statement that Mark puts in there. And he goes on to say, and he said, Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So here we are again, exactly where we landed last week when we were talking about circumcision. The heart of man's problem is the heart of man. That is what makes a man unclean before God, not bacon. Foods that were formerly unclean were simply illustrations of spiritual uncleanliness. And Jesus here exposes the true problem, and in exposing that, he declares all foods clean. He does away with the ceremonial food laws. Why does he do that? Because Jesus is on his way to deal with the thing that the unclean foods symbolized. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And it's through his atoning death that the problem of sin, spiritual uncleanliness, is dealt with. In Christ's death, the sins of unclean rebels are punished once and for all. And because the sins are dealt with, guess what happens? The barrier between man and God is removed. And man becomes clean through the blood of Jesus, which washes away the sins of all who believe in Jesus. And so man and God are at long last reconciled. And Peter's withdrawal from the Gentiles, as if they are unclean, is actually to treat them like an unbeliever. This is a big deal. Verse 14 Paul says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's a good question. In the heat of the moment, Peter is just thinking about Peter. He's not thinking about the implications of his actions. That's typical Peter, by the way, based on what we've seen elsewhere in the New Testament. But Paul's question here is basically saying that Peter's withdrawal from table fellowship with the Gentiles is communicating to the Gentiles that they are still a defiled people and that their faith in Christ is not enough to clean them. Do you see what's going on here? Peter has played right into the hands of the Judaizers. And Paul is saying, Peter, you have denied the gospel by your actions. Congratulations. But the truth of the gospel says a different word. It says that these Gentiles have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and so now they are clean in him. But there's more. This blood, not only the blood of Jesus, not only brings reconciliation and unity between man and God, but it's also meant to reconcile man with his fellow man. There are all different kinds of things that divide man. Racial differences, cultural differences, deep-seated prejudices and hatred, mutual suspicion. Man, in his unredeemed, sinful state, is not only at war with God, but is at war with one another. And so we divide off into little factions and groups and bands, and we're at each other all the time. There's this hostility 
between man. But the gospel is meant to bring an end to the war. As the Apostle Paul, writing a word of encouragement to Gentiles, in Ephesians 2, says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Isn't that a wonderful set of verses? Absolutely beautiful. The gospel brings people who have been in enmity and in hostility towards one another, brings those people together, and all of the things that formerly divided them are dwarfed by the one great thing that unites them, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's withdrawal from table fellowship with the Gentiles, which probably also included withdrawal from having the Lord's Supper with them, sent a message saying, maybe there's two peoples of God. Maybe we're not of the same family. Maybe the gospel was not powerful enough to bridge the sinful division and hostility between man. And yet, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3 that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so, Peter's actions in Galatians 2, Paul says, are out of step. They're out of line with the truth of the gospel. It is telling a lie about the gospel. It's telling a lie about Christ. And friends, it's not only Peter that is at risk of falling. Harbin's church is at risk too. If Peter can fall, so can you. So can I. You see, we, we, we learn from Paul's confrontation with Peter that the gospel is not just something that unbelievers need to get saved. And then you get saved, and then you move on from the gospel. I'm done with the gospel. Let's get into deeper things now. Yes, the gospel is for unbelievers, and that it opens the door for salvation. But also, the gospel is for believers, and that in it, we find how to live in light of our salvation. You never move on from the gospel. Harbin's church will never move on from the gospel. Not as long as I'm pastor here. Every aspect of your life and every relationship that you have is to be shaped by the truths of the gospel. And how we live is either in line with the gospel or it's out of step with the gospel. You filter your life through the grid of the gospel. When formerly we were controlled and governed by other things like fear of man, now we are to be controlled and governed by the gospel and the truths of the gospel. 
Now, we probably won't fall out of line with the gospel here at Harbin's over the eating of pork. But there are plenty of other ways we as a church might display conduct that is not in step with the truth of the gospel. We can affirm the gospel with our mouths. We can sign on to a doctrinal statement. But then we can refuse to reconcile with somebody else in this church where there's been an offense. And we can ignore one another and treat one another as dead and give one another the silent treatment. Friends, that is not in step with the gospel. We can affirm the gospel with our lips And yet we can turn around and treat our brothers and sisters in this church with suspicion. Or we can gossip about them and badmouth them. Or we can shun them. And I must say to my sorrow that that does happen here at Harbin's. And it's not in step with the gospel. And I'm not just talking to adults, teenagers, kids. Listen to me on this. Hear me on this one. This is for everyone in this room who claims to be a Christian. We can act like we are cheerleaders for the gospel, but then only acknowledge people in this church who are just like us. People who we can relate to, who are a little easier to get along with, or whom we share a common interest with. And we can withdraw from Christians who are not like us and refuse to try to build loving bridges to them. And my fear is that what I'm saying right now isn't being heard by anybody because we don't think it's a really big deal. Or we're we're thinking about how this applies to somebody else in this room, but not to ourselves. And what will break my heart is that no one will leave here today considering how he or she might live in such a way that better walks in line with the truth of the gospel. Don't waste the past 45 minutes. Don't waste it because we don't think it's important or relevant to us personally. Jesus thought it was pretty relevant. Jesus prayed for the unity of the church in John chapter 17. He prayed for us. And he prayed in John 17, 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says that the unity that Harbin Church has in Christ will actually result in people believing that Jesus Christ was sent from God. That's pretty huge. That's pretty relevant. That's something we need to be thinking about all the time as a church body. This has evangelistic implications. A lot is at stake in whether or not we are committed to living in step with the truth of the gospel. But at the same time, let's remember that the unity that we struggle for will never be perfect in this age. Because you will never be perfect in this age, and neither will I. And so part of the unity we are to have now is not expressed in all of us being perfect to one another all the time. Instead, it's expressed in patience and grace and forgiveness and long-suffering. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 4, being kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ 
forgave you. You see, that's letting your life be shaped by the gospel. You see, like Old Testament Israel, the church is supposed to be a strange and distinct and peculiar people in how we live. But our identity marker isn't circumcision or food laws. It's supposed to be the love we have for one another. It's supposed to be a strange love, a peculiar love. We're not supposed to be like everybody else. If an unbeliever got to know the congregation, they should see something. What is, what is going on there? That's not what I see in the office. That's not what I see in my, my life with my people and my friends. Something's happening at that church that I just can't, I've never seen before. And the love that we are to have for one another through the unifying power of the gospel speaks a word to the world about the truth of the gospel. That it's real. That it really does have power. I find it striking that according to Acts chapter 11, believers were first called Christians, guess where? In Antioch. Not not in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem... Believers were called followers of the way, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's great. Jesus said, I am the way. But they're first called Christians in Antioch. One commentator writes that a new reality had come into being with this new called-out company of Jews and Gentiles whose identity and self-definition centered neither in their Jewishness nor their Gentile character, but rather in their common devotion to the one in whose name they shared a common meal. Thus they were called Christiani, folks of Christ. Friends, our church, like any church, is under risk of division, of factions. But can we, through the power of the Spirit, uphold the truth of the gospel and attain greater levels of mutual love and unity, not just for our good, but for the good of the world who might come to believe that Jesus is from God because in us all lesser distinctions have faded into the background and we have become known simply as Christiani, folks of Christ, where the first thing we see in one another is not how we're different, but how we're one. Now, as we struggle towards better unity now, Let's take hope that one day that perfect unity that we all long for will indeed come. In fact, it's predicted in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus looks forward to a time and sees this perfect unity and peace that will come one day and it's expressed in a meal through table fellowship, through a celebration that will usher in a new age in the new heavens and the new earth where Jew and Gentile and all peoples who have trusted in Christ will sit and eat and be one. Jesus says in Matthew 8, 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And I say, amen to that. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your holy and inspired word. Father, I pray now that the Holy Spirit would apply that word to our hearts. Father, help us now to be humble. 
Help us now to, to not think of our neighbor or, or, or think of somebody else in this room, but how the word applies to us in our hearts, in our lives, how we have fallen short and, and how we have room for growth. Father, would, would your Holy Spirit work through your word in that way? And Father, would you help Harbin's church move another step closer to attaining the kind of gospel unity that gives glory to God and testifies to the truth and the power of the gospel. We will not get there without you. But I thank you, Father, that you are here and that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in many, many people in this room. And so, Father, we put our hope in the work that you will do through us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen.